0: Hello. As reports emerge that four busloads of civilians managed to leave Mariupol on Wednesday, we hear from UN humanitarians who continue to plead for safe and sustained access to the besieged city. Also in this week's show, we visit the UN satellite centre UNOSAT, which is tracking the devastation caused by shelling across Ukraine. How does it fit into the international calls for accountability following Russia's invasion on the 24th of February? Away from Europe, the Horn of Africa needs all our attention too, say aid agencies who've raised the alarm once again over the many millions of people who face catastrophic food insecurity after three failed rainy seasons. Stay with us too for closing comments about defiant poets in Spain, Russia and in space from our regular guest, Solange Bejartegui-Cortez. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. First, the news. (laughs) UN Secretary-General Antony Guterres has written to the leaders of Russia and Ukraine to request meetings with them in their respective capitals in a renewed push for peace. UN spokesperson Stefan Jarek told journalists on Wednesday that Mr Guterres had said at this time of great peril that he wanted to discuss urgent steps to bring about peace in Ukraine and the future of multilateralism based on the Charter of the United Nations and international law. The development came as UN aid agencies and partners said that they're continuing to try to reach Ukraine's most vulnerable people amid devastating Russian shelling and attacks on healthcare. An estimated 6 million people need food and cash assistance, according to the World Food Program (WFP), which has been able to provide relief to previously inaccessible areas such as Bucha, Irpin, Hostomel and Borodyanka. But the agency's emergency coordinator for Ukraine, Jacob Kern, insisted on Tuesday that sustained humanitarian access was critical if those in dire need of help in places like Mariupol are to be reached. The city of Mariupol, 100,000 people, would probably need about two or three trucks a day for just food alone, let alone all the other items. So it's not a question of going with 10 trucks once a month. That's not going to, to cut it. UN humanitarians have issued a fresh warning over hunger linked to drought in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia, where up to 16 million people are now highly food insecure. Three consecutive seasons of failed rains in the Horn of Africa are responsible for much of the suffering, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization FAO. But COVID-19, rising food prices, desert locust infestations and conflict have also contributed to increased vulnerability. The World Food Programme also warned that it's having to prioritise treatment of people with acute malnutrition rather than invest in much cheaper prevention efforts because of a lack of funding. Here's Michael Dunford, WFP Regional Director for East Africa Now, on the situation in Somalia, according to the latest IPC food insecurity analysis.
1: The number of people on the verge of famine, well, we estimate that there are already 81,000 in IPC5, pockets of IPC across Somalia they are already what we consider to be in a catastrophic state. There are another 1.4 million in IPC4. And so without our ability to respond, to prioritise these populations, they risk falling into
2: famine-like conditions.
0: In a related alert, UN humanitarians warned that food insecurity is equally dire in South Sudan, which has seen the conflict in Ukraine drive up the cost of wheat. That is expected to lead to an increase in the demand for maize and sorghum, putting these staples beyond the reach of many vulnerable South Sudanese at the peak of the lean season, the World Food Programme said on Thursday. Finally, advice for HIV patients now from the UN health agency WHO. It's urged countries to adopt a new treatment for an associated secondary infection of cryptococcal disease, which can be deadly unless correctly treated. Cryptococcus is a common fungus that lives in the soil and in bird droppings that can infect the lining of the brain and spinal cord, contributing to illness, disability and mortality, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. WHO described it as one of the most important opportunistic infections among people living with advanced HIV. The new treatment involves giving a single high dose of the antifungal agent liposomal amphotericin B to people with HIV who have cryptococcal meningitis. The headlines there and now to this week's interview. Did you know that the UN has a satellite imaging centre right here in Geneva? Humanitarian agencies make use of it to track mass displacement or to predict where aid will be needed, saving time and money. But the UN satellite centre UNISAT is also hard at work covering the Ukraine war, tracking and analysing the destruction on the ground. To find out more about UNISAT's work, I spoke to its director, Aina Biogo, who kindly showed me round the facility where analysts were hard at work. So this team of experts are using satellite
1: imagery in order to get information about what is happening over Ukraine, but also on all other cases. Huh? But for now, if you take Ukraine as an example, we are supporting many different UN entities. So we always work upon a request, and we are making sure that that request is being handled in the most professional manner as possible. So what we are doing is that we are taking, for example, an imagery as soon as it's been taken before the conflict, and then we compare it with imagery taking right after the conflict. In the beginning, we had quite a bit of challenges for Ukraine because of a lot of clouds, but that has cleared now. So we are also able then to monitor, as we say, to update the information as we go along. I should also say that we are you know, also hosted here by UNITAR, the UN Institute for Training and Research, which is
0: also occupying uh, this space. Thank you for that introduction. What can you tell us about the latest from Ukrainian cities and towns that have been particularly badly affected? Mariupol, Bucha, Ipin, Hostomel, and Donetsk, Because I think people are desperate to know about the situation there.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the benefits, of course, of satellite imagery, and especially in this conflict situation, there's a lot of imagery available. So basically what we do is that we analyze the cities. We have two different products. One being what we call a rapid damage assessment, where we divide each city into squares. So we're able to very fast see if in one square there are damaged buildings.
0: So we've got a screen, a very large screen, with an aerial view of Mariupol which has been divided up into grids. And there are red squares, yellow squares and clear squares, noting where damage has happened, where there's visible damage or new damage. That's right, isn't it, Ina? Yes, exactly. What we see is really significant damage over Mariupol. So down by the port area in particular and these updates are provided regularly both to humanitarians but another part of your work I see I don't know where you find time for all this is with the International Criminal Court. You're on the Scientific Advisory Board at the Office of the Prosecutor. What's the mandate for that exactly? Where will this information be taken now?
1: Well the mandate of the Scientific Advisory Board was really in the first place just to have a more scientific approach two cases in front of the court. Many of those go on on medical procedures, but was also very pleased when they invited us to participate to this so that we can have best practices. And also when it comes together in satellite imagery analysis, of course, this is typically information that is in addition. It's not a standalone information. But in many cases, it's really important to have that documented because it gives you also a point in time where something happened.
0: Uh, and, for- and how about Butcher? Because that was yeah. also in the headlines just yes. in recent days and yeah. it looked awful. Yeah. What, what does your analysis managed to show? And how will that contribute as well to any potential accountability yes. claim? Yes. Uh,
1: however, please note that we only work upon requests. So once we get a request for this, we will definitely take a look at it and it can come from from various sources. But yes, we do have that imagery well documented. It is also important in such cases also to compare it to ground photos because that helps our analysts, our excellent analysts here, uh, making sure that they can have additional information. They can identify, for example, a car in the image, and then there, in that case, really see how the situation was there when it happened.
0: I'm interrupting the work of an expert here. Um, What's your name? My name is Mathieu. Okay, Mathieu, what are you going to show us? Maybe you could talk us through it. This is a map of Butcha
3: that was released on the 8th of April using imagery from the 31st of March. In this map, we have actually taken a detailed look at every single building in the uh, Butcha area to see whether it's damaged and then to see whether it's moderately damaged, severely damaged or completely destroyed. We've also tried to take a look at the different areas where there's health facilities, education facilities to see whether the damage are directly affecting these facilities. So we're trying to get a general overview, but at the same time quite detailed. So here we're looking at a big facility. And then on the previous image, which is from June of 2021, so before the
0: uh, conflict started, uh, we can see that it's perfectly fine. It's intact, isn't it? You can see in the image from November 2019, it's uh, intact, this massive factory. And then from a few weeks ago, it's raised to the ground. Exactly, so you can see the cars also in the
3: previous image and if you go to the image which dates to uh, the 3rd of April of this year, you can see it's completely raised to the ground, no more uh, cars on the parking lot, so it's quite a drastic change.
0: So this is the overview. If we wanted yeah. to go closer, we could. And I guess if there are any space tech enthusiasts out there, they'd want to know exactly what you're using. Can you share that or is that too sensitive, that information? Uh, no, no. The, the
1: images are our commercial imagery. It's coming from the Maxar company, a series of satellites. I also should say that we, we get those in kind from the U.S. State Department, which helps us greatly. And it's not just for Ukraine, it's in general. And we are, we are using quite a bit of those satellites in our assessments. Why? Because they are what we call high-definition satellites, very, very detailed, down to 30-centimeter resolution. So basically, the smallest element you can see is 30 by 30 centimeters.
0: You can see from space something that's 30 centimeters wide or square. That's incredible. We haven't touched on another aspect of UNOSAT's work, and that is identifying displacement which is obviously key mm. too in Ukraine. How have you contributed to the work of humanitarian agencies so far? So
1: in the beginning, yes, we saw quite a bit on the, on the border crossings. Um, quite long a column of, of cars and and, uh, and also yeah, the trains
0: etc. Right. I know you're busy. So last question: away from Ukraine, where would you say that Unisat has its interest at the moment? Because it's obviously not the only emergency, sadly. No, definitely we are working on, for example, flooded situations across the world,
1: looking at also a lot of capacity development efforts that we do. In terms of climate change, for example, we, we have a big project in the Pacific. So it's really nice to see this cross-cutting nature of this technology. I think that is what makes it very interesting because we can see how this technology is really helping in, in all aspects of the sustainable development agenda. And I think that is also something that we saw during the COVID was that a lot of people sort of opened their eyes to satellite imagery because before they were used to going there, but now they can see that You can actually use these satellites to get information where you cannot go.
0: Thank you so much to Aina Bjorgo and all our new friends at UNOSAT. Now, from the stars above us to another one here at ground level. Don't groan, it's regular guest Solange Bejategui-Cortez with some heartfelt closing comments as ever.
2: Hi Sol. Hola Daniel. From heaven to earth, Satellite imagery gives us the possibility to widen our eyes and to have quality information. It's so necessary, especially in wartime. Even if it is equally necessary to ask a few questions every time, who requested the satellite images, with whom are they going to be shared, and when. Also, from the sky to the earth, in 2018, a group of poets in their own way bombarded a big square in Madrid, La Plaza Mayor, with 100,000 poems that they dropped from a helicopter, recalling what the city suffered during the civil war. Almost one month before the Russian invasion in Ukraine, in a project named Up to the Cosmos, the same group of poets made a journey in reverse from the earth to the sky. They sent a universal poem to Colzac Nebula, located 600 light years away from the earth. The 23,000 verses were sent from Punta Arenas in Chile, and they will reach their destination in 2622. This poem, traveling through the space, is a message of peace and love, and it is also a lesson that we should never underestimate the relationship between science and poetry. It is what astronomer Carl Sagan would have called a message in a bottle thrown into the cosmic ocean. The entire technological process for the poetic launch was carried out by the Danish robotics and satellite communication company Higgy Universe. The poem was translated into a radio wave, which was sent via a satellite antenna in the Earth's orbit. In 21st century warfare, information is a powerful weapon, just like poetry. You said to me that sometimes the pen is mightier than the sword. The universal poem sent to the space will never end. Dialogue between cultures must not end either. In a previous edition of UN Kachap, we shared poems written by Ukrainian poets. Now, I would like to finish with a quote from Russian poet Elena Saslavskaya, who believes that poems exist to defy gravity. She writes, carry me through death and war, life in clay mixed with love, that if we need a reason to survive and a reason to die, love doesn't need a reason.
0: Thank you, Sol. Elena Zadovskaya's poetry is haunting in places, and I was just looking at what she said about what poetry means to her, and she said that it's an opportunity to try to make sense of the mystery of vowels and consonants, of breathing and rhythm that's all around us. I thought that was very interesting, and do have a look for it. Elena Zadovskaya, who is a Russian poet. That's all we have time for, I'm afraid, so. Thank you so much for your comments again this week. And thank you to listeners for being with us and following the work of the United Nations. Hopefully, we're reaching out to as many of you as possible. We'll be back next week. Hope you'll join us then. Bye-bye for now.
2: Ciao, Daniel.